continue the uh, series that Jeff has started, uh, looking at the advent of Christ and then the second coming on, on down the road. So we've read Luke 2. Let's go over to Luke chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19. And we'll pick up the uh, second advent here, beginning in verse 1. Let's listen to God's holy and inerrant word. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's bow together and pray as we approach his word. Father, as we sang a while ago, our our sins are many, but your mercy is so much more. Lord, we we hold your word with incredible humility because we know the holy God from which it came. We pray this morning, Father, that you would teach us from the depth of our heart. And don't let us leave the same way we came in. Change us. Let your spirit dwell within us mightily and, Father, May we be totally yours. We pray that you'll guide us in our study this morning. And Father, we thank you for your word to us. In Christ's name, amen. I just realized I need to make sure my phone is off. Don't I do that? I heard something beep. We've had a lot going in the church this year. It's made me wonder as we approach the text... If, if you have a major event coming up, like a, a wedding, or a major announcement, how do you get the word out? Used to, we just send invitations through the mail, but now there's all kinds of electronic means. You get not only the invitation, but a little button to push to RSVP, and if you want to order flowers or food, you push another button, and it's all right there. It's so convenient. But, but suppose you had a message you wanted to get out to the whole world. How would you do that? 
I ran across an article this, this, uh, this week from a consulting firm, and they said that if you're a corporation and you want to get a message out that, hey, we're doing something that's going to change life, first thing you need is a media consultant. So you hire a media consultant, a media specialist who can communicate well, and then you make sure you have backup documentation, and you limit your announcement to three major points, like a sermon, I guess. So don't, don't go overboard. You've got to make it clear and concise, and then decide when you're going to make your announcement. If it's a good announcement, make it Monday morning. If it's a bad announcement, make it Friday at 4.30 when everybody's going home. The last thing he said was, make sure your employees know it first. <laughs> because you don't want your employees to learn bad news from the radio. They need to hear it from you first. And so I thought, suppose the media company was in on the announcing the birth of Christ. The greatest event that's ever happened in the history when God broke into human time and space in the form of a baby. Can you imagine the media consultant coming up and say, well, you need to have a, a media specialist? And, well, how about an angel? And how about the host of heaven? Just made the announcement bright and clear. Nobody can, nobody can miss it. Well, you got a backup documentation. Well, how about the Old Testament prophecy? Kind of paves the way, doesn't it? Three, uh, three-point message. Well, how about... For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, and that will be a sign to you. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth among those with whom he's well pleased. Three points, pretty, pretty concise. When will you do it? Well, how about the night he's born? What a celebration. And will you tell your people first? Or you mean the Jews? Yeah, I'll announce it to my people. But who? Uh, Jeff mentioned last week that the shepherds weren't allowed to testify in court because they were counted to be such scoundrels. I went out shaking my head. I've got to research that. Josephus, the historian of the time, says that they were scoundrels. And he said not only could they not testify in court... But they were, Israelites were not allowed to buy milk or bread, anything from shepherds. Because he said, you must assume that if a shepherd has it, it's stolen. <laughs> but you, the more I thought about it, the, the more it doesn't seem unreasonable that God would appear to these shepherds. If he's disclosing the depths of God's grace in the birth of a Savior... What better group to announce it to than the depths of depravity of humanity? The people who most need grace are the ones who first heard, heard the message. And it came with, with such vigor that there was no, well, I don't know, did you hear what they said? It, it was like, we've got to go and see this baby. There's no doubt in their minds that God had visited them and announce the coming of this child. So the question for us this morning is, how does that advent of Christ apply to us? What difference does it make in our lives? I want to go back and begin even before Luke, back in the Old Testament, and remember some of God's promises from the past. 
What we have to remember is promises because that's what our life is built upon. For our future is built upon. God makes promises and he keeps them. For example, in, in Isaiah chapter uh, 60, if you'll turn with me there. God said this, after saying the Messiah would come, he said, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of God has risen upon you. God's light had broken in or will break into this earth, he said. That's a promise. There's a guy in Colorado who was trying a new sleep medicine, and he fell asleep in the basement, and when he woke up, it was pitch black. There were no windows down there. And he wandered around the basement trying to find his way out. But the sleep medicine didn't allow him to fully wake up. So he, he wandered around knowing he had to wake up to get out of the basement, but he couldn't. He couldn't find the light switch. And so he's bumping into things. It's kind of, kind of like us. We bump into all kinds of things in life. Sin, hurt. We bump into people's past, the way they were raised. We bump into greed. Some of these things we adopt in our own lives because that's what we see around us in the darkness. We desperately need for a light to shine. Because when a light shines in darkness, things get illumined and you see things for what they really are. And you begin putting names to things. That's wrong. Or that's right. That's good. No, I, I can't be that way. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The light shone a little bit in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, the shepherds in the field. But that ended the fullness of it. It was a promise, but it hadn't happened quite yet. C.S. Lewis wrote a book about, uh, wrote an essay on glory. It's called The Weight of Glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kaboth, and it means a heaviness or a fullness. It, it goes with importance. What's the glory of God? When we ascribe glory to him, well, what are we saying? Well, what we're saying is that he has a reputation. He's imminent. He's with excellence. He's supreme. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's holy. Back in, as Isaiah first began his ministry in chapter 6, he sees God, and he says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each of them six wings, that he covered his face with two, he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That heaven is that reputation that he has of being all-powerful. R.C. Sproul preached a series on this early in his ministry. And he said, uh, how do we emphasize words in our language? We underline them, make them bold, put exclamation points. Sometimes we use red type if we want to really make something stand out. But in the Hebrew mindset, the way you made things stand out was to repeat it. So the angels didn't just say God is holy. It was holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. 
They wanted to express in the most superlative degree that God is too pure to look upon sin, that he's totally other than his creation. He stands above it as creator. In him's purity, there is no darkness at all. He's light. He's love with no distortions, no digressions like we have. And then he says, the whole earth is full of his, one theologian said, he, he could have said, holy is the Lord, the whole earth is full of his holiness. But he doesn't. He says the whole earth is full of his glory. Because his glory is the eminence of his holiness. It's how we perceive of God. It's how his grandeur is displayed. A light so bright that no one can dare even look upon it. And it's the light that shone upon the shepherds that night in the field. Isaiah, in response to all of that, when God said, I'll cleanse you, uh, God says, who shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, remember, said, well, here I am, send me. But what Isaiah didn't know at that point was just a little bit later, God would be talking about sending someone else besides him. Isaiah would go to his generation. But in chapter 7, one chapter later, God begins saying, I'm sending my son into the world. Chapter 7 of Isaiah. It's verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. He goes on in chapter 9 to describe some more of this, his son. Chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The glory of God, a light shining in darkness. And then down in verse Verse 6, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Glory of God is about to shine into this world. And it will be the, the, the one event that begins to shape history so that history becomes truly his story. It's, everything finds its meaning in the light of God's glory. Uh, Brent Curtis was a friend in Colorado. He and John Eldridge wrote a book together called The Sacred Romance. And in there he, he talks about how we tend to define ourselves by a story around us. For example, the story of our, our family. Well, I'm, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. Or we see ourselves in terms of the story of our, our larger environment, our work. Well, I, I work over you know, so-and-so place, and, and I do this job, and that's, that's who I am. But they say that the main thing that defines us is our relationship to Jesus Christ. There's a broader story that should be defining us. We live in a culture today where a lot of people judge the world around them by the story they hear from news radio. It's either all bad or, or all good or it depends on who the commentator is that day. And we, we order our lives after what we hear. And I think what God would have us do is say, God, what are you doing in the world? How is your glory being displayed? 
That's the story that defines who we are. That's the story that defines our culture. God is in control, and his glory is in the process of being displayed. After saying the child would be born, you know, in Isaiah 53, he talks about that child. And how he would grow up and how our iniquities would be laid upon him. And by his discipline, we would be healed. The shepherd would say later on, or the angel would say to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and peace among men with whom God's pleased. What was the price of our peace? A savior. Born in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. We need to recognize, secondly, not just God's promises in the past, but God's promises now, the scent of God's presence around us. Another thing C.S. Lewis wrote in his book was that a lot of times we encounter things in life that strike a chord within us. He said a lot of times, if you look back over the course of the history of your life, maybe you're looking through old photographs, and you see one and your eyes light up, your soul comes alive and you think, I remember that time. Do you ever do that? He said that some people call it nostalgia, a longing for the past. But Lewis said it's really a longing for home. What happened is whatever we saw or whatever happened to us at that moment in the past reminded us that we are of Jesus Christ. We belong in heaven. The Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts. And there are certain events that touch that within us. We recognize it because we see God in creation. Something reminds us of what we're meant to be and who God is. And it strikes a chord within us. And he said, it's not that we're longing for the past. We're longing for a moment that reminded us we're not home yet. The glory of God has yet to be fully revealed in us. Shepherds there that, that, that night. Can you imagine laying down on the fields and the sheep were, weren't too far away? Maybe telling jokes about the day or recounting what they had done. And suddenly one of them looks up and sees a bright spot in the sky and it gets larger. He realizes what he's seeing is an angel. He begins to make out the features and the statue, the creature. And then starts talking to them. And the glory of God, the very presence of God shone around about them. And if that weren't enough, then, then the whole heavens began opening up. And the whole host of heaven appeared to them. It's life-changing. But it was only a foretaste of what was to come. Remember, the angel said, glory to God in the highest on the earth, peace to men among whom he's pleased. If you look over in Romans chapter 5, you see something of the fulfillment of that. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Until we have peace with God, we can't have peace with one another. Because we keep bumping into each other's sins. We bump into the downsides of each other. We bump into selfishness. We bump into envy. But when we're forgiven and God's at work within us, 
we begin to sense that we are a part of the body of Christ. And there's a settled peace that comes over any congregation that lives before the face of God. The transformation continues in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul writes, For we all with unveiled faces, beholding in the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, when we accept Jesus Christ into our life, and we're giving a new birth, something happens where we begin changing. I was reading a, a course this, this week online, and the professor was talking about whether or not a certain person in our culture was a Christian based on their actions. You think, well, what makes somebody a Christian is not their actions, it's their faith, first of all. And if they're truly born again, then it begins to show up in the way they live. The Bible is very clear about that, that a person who is saved begins to work it out. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, lest anybody should boast. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What God works inside then gets worked out as we begin to display that we are indeed children of God. I remember decades ago, I started to say centuries ago because it feels like it. I was in college and uh, went to King College to been to. And uh, while I was there, the Bible department was liberal. You'd go in and, and they would say, do you really believe the Bible? Well, how about? And they'd bring up something. And so the students went off campus to a little house outside the front gate, and we would have Bible studies together and play guitars and sing. We, we listened to some of the great theologians. We'd go to a, a conference at Asbury Seminary once a year, an outdoor conference, uh, outdoor concert. Uh, Andre Krauts would be there. Theologians from some of the great seminaries would be there, and we'd hear incredible teaching, and we would come back and we were convinced that we could change the world. I mentioned that to somebody this week and they laughed. How naive. But what if everybody in my generation fell in love with Christ and said, I think we can change the world. This country would be a different place. But it takes those in whom the light of God's glory is shown who are being changed from glory to glory and who live in, in a constant expectation of God fulfilling his purposes. God is sovereign. He will complete what he started. The good work he's beginning in us, the Bible says he will complete. And so we, we see God's promises in the past and his work with us in us in the present and in the future. We read the passage of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Go back with me to uh, Revelation. I like the parallel structure of the passage. Over and over, you see, hallelujah, and then a reason for it. And then hallelujah, and a reason for it. The first one is that God has judged evil. Isaiah said that the Messiah would be a judge of evil, and it happens. 
he ends up, as Jeff mentioned, with a hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Peter had written that whatever, when you have, let's just go to it right quick. First Peter, uh, fine patch. First Peter, second uh, Peter 2, 8, 1, 8. He talks about uh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and great promises so that you might become partakers of the divine nature. See, when we see Christ, we'll be like he is. And the glory that emanated from him will be reflected in us. C.S. Lewis one time said that when you look at other believers, if you could only see that unimaginable being within them that will live for eternity, instead of shaking hands, you might fall down and be tempted to worship them. They bear the image of God. And they'll be conformed to his image completely. He says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours or increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, so he's blind. And on down. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. The, the linen, the righteous deeds of the saints that we're dressed with when we come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Have you ever wanted to be a bride? <laughs> what church we are. But you know what? You can never reach the end unless you make a beginning. You can't Halfway through a race, decide just how, I think I'll get into this race. Oh, there's a finish line. Hey, guys, I finished the race. No, you didn't. You never made a beginning. What's your beginning to reach the end of the wedding feast of the Lamb? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says. You'll be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be born again. Believe in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and those sins will be forgiven. And as you live your life and you're changed from glory to glory, then you put on his image because God is going to conform you to the image of Christ so that when he appears, you'll be just like him. May God grant us the grace to hear the promises he's made and to trust in him, to receive Christ. To be a part of being that change from glory to glory. And then one day in hope, we stand before the throne of God and behold him face to face. Let's pray. Father, we have so far to go, but we serve a God who's powerfully at work within us. And you tell us that the work that you've begun, you will bring to completion by your spirit. Lord, give us the humility to bow before you and seek your activity in our lives. Help us to wait upon you and to know that you're God. Help us to see you as Lord of all creation and to stand before your glory 
Because in your glory, all other power on this earth pales by comparison. Father, you've made us yours. Now, Father, work within us in a mighty way. When our hearts tend to be rebellious, Father, crush that rebellion with your grace and your spirit. When we tend to run the opposite way, Lord, shepherds, seek us out and pull us back. And then, Father, grant that one day we might stand before your throne and hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.